G.I. Packer once wrote, if covenant theology is what it claims to be, that is, if it is the framework laying out the biblical understanding of the only manner in which the God of history has ever dealt with his people or revealed himself to them, then its importance should be obvious. If we are not in covenant with God, we will never know him at all. And if we do not understand the importance of the covenants, we will not be able to make much sense of vast portions of the Bible. What was it in the simplest mode of expression that Jesus shed his blood to accomplish? According to his own words at the Last Supper, the significance of his death was summed up in one term, new covenant. If we do not understand covenant terminology, this will leave us at best with a very fuzzy understanding of the benefits of Christ's death. And if we do not understand the unity and organic connectedness of the divine covenants, we will miss the coherence of the Bible, the unity of God's redemptive design, and the centrality of the Christ of the covenants, who is the Bible's great hero. This is the Reformed Faith and Family Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Reform Faith and Family Podcast. This is episode three. We are your hosts, Caleb Stomberg, along with my wife, Lindsay. Yeah, I'm so glad that you are listening in today. And I just wanted to take a moment to let you know how you can help to encourage us in this podcast and share the word with your friends. Uh, We are so appreciative that you are listening in. And this will only take a moment of your time, but there is such a thing as shadow banning when there is content that is shared that uh, algorithms don't like, such as conservative Christian values. And a way that you can help us to get the word out about this podcast and help support us with just a moment of your time is just to leave a five-star review on whatever uh, podcast listening app that you enjoy, and then share the podcast with your friends if you like an episode. Definitely, and we would appreciate the encouragement, and and we would appreciate you know to hear hear from you about what what things you, you you've liked or things that you're really hoping that we'll discuss or or just to let us know that you're praying for us and we do want this to be a blessing to God's people so any any of that would be very helpful yes and if you do like our content because we both have the podcast and we have new articles on the website each week as well as uh, products that we review, um, books and different things that are our favorite things that we'll put out there for everyone that you can add to your family Bible studies or family worship time, then you can actually subscribe to our Reform Faith and Family newsletter that we send out every Thursday. If you go to our website at reformfaithandfamily.com, there's a little subscribe button up in the right-hand corner that you can subscribe to and you'll get our content when it comes out each week. Yeah, and that's just the best way to stay current with any everything we're doing. And and if there's anything special we want to promote or that we find especially useful or helpful that we want to make everybody aware of, that's a good way to make sure that you're going to be in the know with, what, with what's going on and with what we know. So this is, uh, as I said, episode three, and this is going to be our second part of a, of a three-part series, or at least as of right now, it's a planned three-part series on what does it mean to be reformed? 
Lindsay, is that, that's a question we get quite a bit, isn't it? Yes, it is a question we get a lot. And the way that you have succinctly, I know you didn't make this up because I've seen it on the internet elsewhere, but you did share it with me about the three C's and the way to explain what being reformed is. And last week we talked about it, we're being Calvinistic. And now we're going to be talking about being covenantal. And then in the next, the third part of the series, the last one, we'll talk about being confessional. Yeah, that's right. And that's, we did, um, we were purposeful in, in, you know, naming this podcast on our website, Reformed Faith and Family. We think, we think that distinction matters and, and we're actually pro using labels. Uh, I know that can be a triggering thing for a lot of people, but we, we found that it, it's very helpful to, to help people just to be able to understand where you're at, to be able to help identify things, people or resources that are are very likely to be in line with what you believe and what you practice. And well, what's funny about that is people actually do really like labels, just not in Christianity, it seems like. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, and, and they, people people want new labels that they invented. They're not not so big on, on ones that someone else has come up with. But, on the historic labels. But we, we did, um, even in a church that we, we planted a couple years back now, we, we kept Reformed in the name of the church, knowing that it was going to cause um, a lot of questions and bring about conversation, and it has, and it's helped identify us uh, easily to those people that are in the community or people that have moved into the community that are looking for a church that they can closely identify with. So that, that's been a helpful thing, even if it means sometimes we need to explain it. So this time uh, we are going to be uh, talking about covenantalism. And if that word sounds new to you, well, it, it should sound familiar at least because the covenant should be a familiar right, word. Right, the root word is is familiar. So it's probably helpful just to even understand what a covenant is. And that's something that we see throughout Scripture uh, that there are there are covenants, um, you know, the Abrahamic covenant, covenants with David, uh, the talk of the old covenant, the new covenant. Uh, and really the, the first time that we, I believe, that we hear the term covenant is when God is talking with Abraham that he was going to make a covenant with him. And, and according to the Hebrew, it's actually to cut a covenant, which which speaks to the the actual actions that, that God went through with Abraham, where he took, took animals and, and cut them in half and laid them on both sides of a path and then passed through those animals. Because well, it, it really gives a, a, a really good ver, a visual picture of the difference between a covenant and a contract. You know, a contract, there can be penalties for breaking, but a covenant... It, it is it is so much more than just that it and the picture of this you know may this be happen to me if I break my word according to this covenant so it's it's really a a, a divine promise from God or a promise that is made before God to be faithful along with stipulations and agreements and with consequence well I think many people when they hear covenant they think marriage but in our day and time marriage is something that is expendable. And so we have to reform our viewpoint um, back to a biblical viewpoint on what a covenant is. Right. And, and that's something that, you know, in marriage counseling, we've, we've tried to stress with people before that marriage is a covenant before God. And it's not an agreement between just the man and the woman. It's not just a contract that, you know, gets involved with the civil magistrate and, or anything like that. It is a covenant before, man, before God that a, a husband and a wife make together that, that bonds them uh, signified even in biblical language of two becoming one flesh. Then, and to think about that that picture, the seriousness of a covenant that 
one flesh for for a marriage to dissolve that one flesh has to be broken has to be cut away and just the violence of that imagery of one flesh being cut in half uh, really signifies the the seriousness of a covenant and, and that that kind of seriousness um, does then transfer to kind of the whole biblical understanding of covenant so it, it's it's just a good place to kind of start that you know when we're talking about covenants that's that's kind of the thing we're talking about and and covenant theology uh, is is a it's a meta narrative it's a kind of a whole bible understanding of, of the way that scripture unfolds the way that history unfolds uh, and that it does so through god's interaction with his people through covenants as, as that quote we opened with from j.i packer kind of explained that that god has revealed himself and interacted with his people through covenants and that language is so consistent throughout scripture uh, and, and really builds ultimately to the culmination of of the, the Son of God coming to earth and sacrificing himself and the new covenant language of our salvation, our hope, and our security in him. So that just a kind of a, a little bit of what it mean, what covenant means. But uh, for, for most of our listeners, um, just like Lindsay and I, uh, you probably have grown up under more of a a general evangelical dispensational kind of system. Um, so even though covenant theology vastly predates dispensationalism, uh, that that really is kind of the main contender, I guess, that that people are, are dealing with now, especially those of us who didn't grow up in a Reformed church or those who are are asking questions or have just discovered, you know, Puritan writings or or Reformed theology and are really trying to work through what that means and, and how that should affect their life. So I'm going to bring up the fact that not everyone is going to know what dispensationalism is if they are not, if they haven't dug into this yet. So let's give a brief introduction to just the word dispensationalism because it's God working through dispensations throughout history. A lot of people just associate dispensationalism with just in times, but it does affect your entire view of scripture. Absolutely. And, and, and I think it just as a way to kind of start, and maybe this will even help you understand if you grew up under a, a more reformed or, or covenantal framework or a dispensational framework is to discuss the, the ways that they differ and that'll help us define them both. I think. Okay. That sounds great. So, um, just broadly speaking, of 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 um, highlights of conf- of a covenantal system uh, is a belief that that there has been one single plan of redemption uh, that has been revealed and planned throughout all of Scripture. So there is one plan of salvation, and it's always been that way. That there has always been one people of God. There's always been one. Um, purpose for history, that, that there's, there's a, a unity from the beginning to the end of what, what is unfolding, what has been promised uh, from the beginning. So it, it starts with an understanding of uh, a covenant of works made between God and Adam in the garden, where there was life promised, continued life promised if he obeyed, and there was death promised if he disobeyed. And, and we all know that Adam disobeyed. And from there, there was a, a series of unfolding covenants throughout history, pointing to and, and promising the salvation that God was going to accomplish for his people. And according to the promise to Abraham, the salvation that was going to be a blessing, not just to Abraham and his descendants, but to all the nations of the world, culminating in Christ 
uh, and the salvation that is available to all who believe. So that that's a, the the unified picture. And uh, as well with that is that the the church is um, the eschatological Israel. So it's uh, it, the church is ultimately the fulfillment of Israel. It's not a replacement for Israel. The church is actually uh, in involves uh, includes both Jew and Gentile. So those Jews who did accept the Messiah and those Gentiles who were then grafted into the true the true Israel who was primarily initially made up of those Jews who did believe in the time of Christ. So, but it is that one single people of God, that one single plan of redemption um, for God's people. And included another, another aspect of, of covenant theology is that the moral law applies both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, that the standards of God have not changed, that God does not change. His character does not change. His interaction with man really doesn't change uh, in a way because the, the strict uh, demands of the law were fulfilled in Christ. So there, there is that fulfilling of that, but man never could never meet that standard to begin with. All right. I think people will, if they if they hear moral law applies to Old Testament and New Testament, the first thing is going to be like, well, why don't we do the sacrificial system anymore? But the entire reason is because Christ was our final sacrifice. Right. And and that's even a, a different aspect of the law. So when typically um, we, we talk of the law, we talk of a, a moral law, uh, which is summed up in the Ten Commandments. We talk of a, a civil or a, a civil law that deals with the, the unique aspects of running the society under the under the nation of Israel and we deal with a uh, a sacrificial law or a ceremonial law that um, deals with the sacrificial system that at point was always designed to point forward and lead people to the understanding and be able to appreciate what what Christ did for us and all of that has been fulfilled so to say that the moral law applies now as it did before is not to say that, Nothing has changed in our relation to the law. It's not to say that all of the laws that were commanded in the Old Testament are still in force today, because clearly uh, the sacrificial system was done away with because we had the the one-time better sacrifice in Christ uh, that did away with the need for that to be repeated. So, But it, it does distinctly state that there is that, that still today, that if we look at the teachings of Christ, um, Jesus, he didn't do away with with the understanding that we are bound to follow the Ten Commandments or that that just because we're saved by grace that we didn't need to obey. Uh, quite the opposite. He actually made it harder. He, he showed how the true intention behind the commandments was greater and stricter than man had even known before. So he heightened our responsibility to obey the, the moral law of God not lightened it. I don't know that people like to hear that. <laughs> no, but they, they do like to hear, or they should like to hear that as he heightened that, he also uh, gave us a helper who works within us and through us to bring us to obedience. And if we love Christ, then we ought to want to please him and obey him as fully as possible. And so we should want to know the extent to which God desires obedience from us. Absolutely. And to know that we have the helper, the Holy Spirit, to help us persevere is very encouraging. So another aspect of that that's common to uh, covenantal theology is 
um, it, it's a lot of times talking about is the analogy of faith, that the, the clearer things in Scripture uh, help us understand the less clear, or that the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. So we, we see what the apostles in the New Testament have revealed, or what Christ himself revealed in the New Testament, uh, and explained the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and we see that, and we interpret through that lens, that the New Testament is clear, that the Old Testament gave us shadows and types, and in Christ we have the fullness of the revelation of God in, in bodily form, and we have a very clear then understanding and teaching about that. So that that's kind of a, a broad hermeneutic that that is common to uh, covenant theology. So when we look at dispensationalism and how it differs from there, and I'm going to do my best to try and be uh, faithful and 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 um, not malicious in in my representation of dispensational theology. Uh, if I don't happen to hit something that you have heard just in the right way, well, um, as with anything in, in the Christian church, there is a, as many different people as there are, there's probably that many different uh, finely tuned ideas of what it is to be dispensational or, you know, a covenant theologian. Uh, but some general things with dispensationalism is that there's a rejection of that initial covenant of works. There's a rejection of... Uh, and I guess I didn't even mention this. I thought I had, but um, throughout the covenants uh, in covenant, according to covenantal theology, um, what we see throughout the progression of covenants is the ultimate revelation and fulfillment of what is called the covenant of redemption. Uh, and, and you won't find that exact term in Scripture, but you will see uh, Christ talk about. Um, people whose names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. We read that in Revelation. We see uh, Jesus talk about in, in John 10 about those that the Father has given me, that I will not lose one, uh, that not one that was given other than the son of perdition, the, uh, even of his disciples that was lost, but that those that the Father gives him will hear his voice and he will call them and he will raise them up on the last day and not one of them will be lost. So there, that that kind of language uh, speaks to that agreement between the Father and the Son. And that's what a major tenet of, of covenant theology is, is that the covenant of redemption, which is the the agreement before creation between the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that, that they would create the universe, that they would create man in their image, uh, that man was going to fall because of the, the freedom of, of the will that was given to man and the ability to sin, um, and then through that, that the Son would be sent to redeem a people for himself, for his greater glory, uh, to the majesty of the name of the Father, that, that whole process. And that's what we see throughout the covenants in Scripture. That was promised as soon as the covenant of works was broken by Adam. Uh, that was promised that the, the serpent that would bruise the heel would have its head crushed by the seed of the woman, uh, ultimately re being revealed in the new covenant, um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about the new covenant a little bit later on and the distinctions between the old and the new, but ultimately fully revealed in the new covenant in, in the blood of Christ and the forgiveness of sin. So that, that overarching um, covenant under which all the covenants that we see in Scripture are, are under is uh, the covenant of redemption. And, and dispensationalism rejects that idea of, of a covenant of redemption, rejects the idea of, of that kind of unified vision plan unfolding from, from before creation all throughout. So that, that's, that's one major distinction. Um, 
uh, dispensationalism rejects the the kind of hermeneutic that we that I discussed a little bit ago that that um, we interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the New Testament that analogy of faith that the clear defines the less clear there is there is um, uh, an expectation that we still must hold on to the Old Testament understanding of prophecy over and above even sometimes in the New Testament when it says this is fulfilled you know in Acts. Two, that you know, and they were quoting, Peter's quoting Joel and talking about these signs and wonders in heaven that were fulfilled before the eyes of those people in front of him. Um, you know, from a covenantal perspective, we would say Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has the right to say this is fulfilled in front of your eyes. Uh, where a dispensationalist perspective would 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 argue that no, this is only in part because those things still need to happen according to that Old Testament expectation because they're still forcing that. I would say forcing, but they're they're using the Old Testament still as the lens through which the New Testament must be seen. Um, so it's kind of a it's a it's a different approach, and it brings us some different kind of conclusions. Uh, the uh, dispensationalism would would see that the new covenant was made with Israel, that the new covenant isn't with with the church or with with all the people who would believe it. It's specifically with Israel that that Israel and the church are in fact two separate peoples of God. Um, with two different purposes and destinies. So, uh, and if you want to, I want a, a succinct way to kind of look through these. Um, 1689federalism.com uh, is a very helpful website, especially if you're Baptist like we are. Uh, it's a very helpful website, and there's there's some graphics on on their website that that do go over the differences between um, covenantalism and dispensationalism, between Baptist covenantalism and Presbyterian covenantalism. All those kind of there's a number and of just resources. Just to clarify there. for our listeners, federalism is just another, like an older term for covenantalism, correct? Correct, yeah. And federalism um, is something that the Baptists, uh, the early Baptists, really kind of preferred that terminology. It's still dealing with covenant theology, but it's taking the name from Christ as our federal head. The understanding that you know all uh, sinned in Adam, so Adam was our federal head of of all humanity. And that if we are saved, if we are part of God's people, then Christ is our federal head. So we sinned in Adam, but we have righteousness in Christ, our new federal head. That's where the term federalism comes from. So as I said, the the dispensationalism would really teach a, a continued distinction between Israel and the church. And then there really are separate plans, and they believe that there was actually no no uh, prophecy for the church in the Old Testament, that the church is, is a completely unexpected development that takes place in the New Testament, and that it's a really almost kind of a, not a side project, but it, it's it's a parenthetical um, time within God's overall redemptive plan of, of the nation of Israel specifically, uh, and, and they would say it's a it's something that God had decided once Israel rejected the Messiah, then the church would be a people who would uh, be used as a tool to bring Israel ultimately back. So it, it there is that that continued distinction between Israel and the church. Uh, they also, in under dispensationalism, would believe that the Ten Commandments, you know, the basic summary of God's moral law, is is in no effect at all unless it's specifically things that are stated again in the New Testament. So that there is no continuation of God's um, standard of, of what he expects from man as revealed in the moral law 
Uh, there is only only things that are continued are specifically those things that are mentioned. Um, so that that's kind of just a brief, you know, a, a distinction between dispensationalism and 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 covenantalism. I will say I did not know that about the ten, only honoring the Ten Commandments if they were mentioned again because. I mean, Jesus actually does sum up the Ten Commandments in. Yeah, and there's, uh, you know, and if we, we might, we're hopefully going to get to it, but a little bit later on, but there's even a, a newer brand of, of covenantalism that, that kind of follows more that line of thinking, too, that, that there's, huh. it's only those things that are specifically laid out in the New Testament and everything else is just gone and has no effect. That's really interesting. I, I guess I would have thought that the Christ summing up the Ten Commandments and you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, I probably butchered that, and then love your neighbor as yourself, that that was just all encompassing as if he had repeated it. And, that, and that's definitely a discussion that, that is had and part of what goes into that, that um, you're trying to figure that out now. And to be fair, just to, you know, we're not, we're not calling people that hold dispensational uh, theology, we're not calling them heretics, we're not saying they're not Christian. Um, traditionally, and, and as far as anybody I'm aware of that's dispensational, uh, believes in the Trinity, believes in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They believe um, in justification by faith alone. There are even some uh, that hold a dispensational theology that are, are mostly Calvinistic, so have a, an understanding of God's sovereignty over all things uh, related to, to salvation. So we don't want, I don't mean to disparage uh, so much as explained, the there is pretty a, a pretty vast chasm though between covenantal theology and dispensationalism, and it really has a major effect because I know that growing up under under a dispensational framework, and I, I was around when all the Left Behind books came out, and and I read a number of them and listened to the audio books of the ones I didn't read. Uh, it, that that was. Uh, it, it influenced me. And the movies it, were awful, <laughs> just awful. <laughs> movies were absolutely awful. Um, but you know, the books were were they captivated my my young imagination. And I remember growing up, and and whenever time the youth would get a chance to influence what was going to be taught, we wanted to talk about end times and, and the rapture and and all those kind of things. And that that influenced me. But at the same time. I, 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 the scripture never seemed to be a cohesive whole to me growing up. And it wasn't until I started seeing things from a covenantal framework that I was able to actually view scripture as a unified whole, that it was, it was one book, one revelation from God, one plan of salvation, uh, and everything made sense and flowed together. And my eyes were opened in, in ways to, to appreciate and to, and to be able to worship God for his, for his faithfulness. In ways that that had been completely closed off to me when I when I was um, still viewing things through a dispensational framework. So it 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 does matter. It has mattered significantly in my life, and not and not just the way I I view what's going to happen in the future, but the way I live my life today and the way I want to build for tomorrow. I know for me, uh, growing up, when I started really questioning was dispensationalism biblical. It was. I was scared. Our church went through an end times course, and I i don't know if it was the Arminian flair that I was around growing up, but the whole idea of, hey, am I going to wake up and I, I've missed the, the rapture? Um, and the, the fear that was built in with all of the 
the dispensational courses, but then also the books, the left behind books, that there was just a general definite curiosity that went with it because it it definitely ramped up people's emotions. They got really excited about learning about that compared to other books of the Bible. There was an, an extra adventurous, fantastical flair. Um, but then I was just scared. It made me fearful. And so the, I, I mean, if we look at what scripture has to say is we are not supposed to be a people of fear if we are found in Christ. And so the idea that I would be scared of Christ coming back because I wasn't sure if I was going to be one of the chosen, it, it just didn't jive with the rest of what I was reading in scripture. And so that made me start questioning it. And I was really, really happy when I found out there were other Orthodox viewpoints on it. And when I started to learn about those other Orthodox viewpoints, uh, we started with amillennialism and then we've crept closer to post-millennialism. But as I started to learn about those, I was like, these are my people. This makes so much more sense. And I would, if you haven't uh, listened to, I would specifically recommend like Bodie Bauckham has a sermon series on amillennialism. And I know there are other recommendations that Caleb could say for the post-millennial side. But I think that we we joked that amillennialism is just a pit stop on your way to post-millennialism. Yeah, and it kind of tends to tends to seem to be that way. And and none of those would be possible to even comprehend without first being convinced of a covenantal framework, whether you have the terminology for it or not. But th- those make sense only only after seeing a cohesive Correct. Un, a plan of salvation. And, and I didn't mean to go off on a rabbit trail, but that definitely is where things started to hit me. Yeah, and, and I, I'm sure that at some point we'll probably have a, a you know an episode that's or more and more that are, are primarily focused on eschatology because um, it's not just something that's interesting for today or, or you know, so we can be excited about the, the events around the world that we see. Uh, it affects your life. It, what you believe about, about the end times, what you believe about what history is moving toward has a massive effect on, on are, you, are you living uh, just to survive the moment and you get out of here because you think everything's falling apart and you're just waiting to get out of here and this is just a holding point? Or or are you convinced that we are soldiers in the kingdom of God, that we are to to build and expand and conquer with the gospel and affect the whole world? I mean, the two those two different positions are drastically going to have an effect on how you live your life. And that that that's something that flows from you know, a covenantal perspective or a dispensational perspective and how that affects things downstream. So that that is a big part that, um, you know, we just aren't going to have time to get into too much right now. But um, I did want to get a little, just acknowledge that, you know, we are, we are Baptist. We, we've said that before, we're Reformed Baptist. And uh, even if there are some listening that might want to uh, cry foul of us of us saying that we can be both Baptist and Reformed. Uh, it, it, I assure you it's possible, and we've had uh, a good rich heritage in, in the Baptist context uh, of people that were Reformed and, and Baptist, but um, we do want to acknowledge that there are some some dis- distinct distinctions between um, a Baptist covenantalism and a Presbyterian or a Pado-Baptist covenantalism. So I just want to acknowledge uh, some of those differences, but but first, um, 
let you know just acknowledge the the vast agreement that there is even between those two positions that it's still a, an acknowledgement that a holding to the the covenant of redemption that that expands from before the creation of the earth uh, ultimately to the fulfillment when Christ comes again and brings his own people home that we we agree on that we agree on there being a covenant of works in the garden with Adam that 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 was broken there we we agree that there is one plan of salvation that in the Old Testament, just as in the New, people are saved not by their works, not by their righteousness, not by their sacrifices, but they're saved because of their faith in the promises of God. Now, they, they didn't have the same clarity of knowledge that we do, that there was a greater revelation given throughout uh, Scripture, concluding in the Son, about, about what we were putting our faith into, but it was still a, a faith in the promises of God according to what had been revealed to them at, at that point. And that, that's always been the means of salvation, that nobody has ever been saved by works. We have always been saved by faith. So that is a, a common agreement that one, one plan of salvation, one people of God that through the Old Testament was almost exclusively made up of ethnic Israel, but not entirely. There were Gentile God-fearers that were trusting in the promises of God, even in the Old Testament, uh, and in the New Testament, and, and uh, with the rejection of the Messiah by the nation of Israel, the church became more and more Gentile in its makeup, more and more filled with the nations rather than just Israel. But it's it's still made up of the true Israel of God, the true people of God, of the people of, of the of the faith of Abraham. So that that's all common understanding, and, and we can have common conclusions as far as where we get to uh, with eschatology and those matters. Well, I do want to say when we're talking about what we have in common with Presbyterians, we've often said that we have more in common with our fellow Presbyterians than we do with some Baptists. Especially Baptists that hold to a dispensational framework. Right. And, and definitely that that is true, that we do, that with the way we see Scripture as a whole, um, at the you know there the differences we'll get to in just a moment here that that are are they're not inconsequential, but um, they aren't as big as as viewing a distinction between Israel and the church as uh, as the conclusions that it leads you to in understanding the the trajectory of history and those kind of things. So um, that that's very true, and that's why you know we'll we'll gladly uh, bear the name Reformed and, and be willing to stand side by side with with our Presbyterian and uh, other Reformed brothers and sisters, because we know that of what, where we stand and what we agree on uh, is, is so great that we can worship side by side, um, at, at least in, in, a, in a certain context. You know, we may not be able to be members of each other's churches, and, but some people have even found ways to get around that. And, and to, uh, there are denominations that, that allow for both. And, um, that's not our practice right now, but we, we can understand at least the impulse to want to because there is so much agreement uh, between Presbyterians and, and Baptists if, if they hold to covenant theology. So the, we, we've talked, I mean, I wanted to emphasize the, the, what we have in common, and I think that that's really good to focus on. Um, but the differences, uh, they, they really pertain to um, what we believe about the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. Um, so under the covenant of redemption that we both agree in, the Baptist model would be to say that the covenant of grace um, was a new covenant. So what we have in the Old Testament is not part of the covenant of grace, that the covenant of grace was something new. 
what we have in the Old Testament are covenants, you know, the covenant of works with Adam, and we have covenants where the covenant of grace and the gospel was given, promised, it was shown in shadows and types, but it was not actually arrived or it was not in force until the new covenant in the blood of Christ. So um, we would say in commonality with, with the Mosaic covenant as, as Moses gave the law and there was promises that if you do these things, you will live in the land and you will flourish and be blessed. And if you do not do these things, if you disobey, then you will surely die. You'll be torn from the land. And the same kind of things we see with the covenant of works in the garden, we see with the Mosaic covenant. And um, even the way that that was symbolized, where uh, rough, you know, a, a large portion of the people were put on, on one mountain and a large portion were put on another, and though they got to represent and the curses were pronounced for those who were unfaithful to the one side and, and the promises to the other, just to signify what what God was would do, and and Hebrews makes clear that you know the the blood of bulls and goats and the sacrificial system and all the things that went along with with the old covenant framework uh, didn't forgive anybody's sins. It didn't provide salvation. Um, so it wasn't a, a, for the purpose of salvation. It was for the purpose of, of staying in the land and flourishing in, in God's blessings and and being able to continue as God's people. And that was someone that was broken. And we see very much a, a continuity with, with the covenant of works in that, in that framework through there, even though um, we would also say that the covenant of grace uh, is revealed progressively and, and more clearly throughout the Old Testament. You know, you go back to uh, in the garden, the promise of the seed of the, of the woman crushing the serpent's head. You go back to Abraham, that the promise that his seed would be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. So there was there was glimpses, you know, the, the promise of a king whose kingdom would last forever and reign over all things in the covenant with David. So I mean, there is a the building progression of understanding, but there is, in the Baptist perspective, a, a, a great distinction between the old covenant and the new covenant, that it is something distinct and new, and that explains... Uh, and we're not going to fully get into it now, but it explains why Baptists see such a distinction in the administration of baptism, because it, it, the the new covenant is not simply a different way of of um, living out of the, uh, the same covenant that we were already in, uh, as a way that we'll talk in a moment. The Presbyterians see it, um, so it's something new, and that new covenant has has a radically new sign. So it's not something that's continued on. Uh, those who are born ethnically to the people, that it's, but it's those who are born of the Spirit uh, by prof- and who profess Christ, who are, who are of the faith. So that's just a, a little bit of some of the distinctives of, of Baptist covenantalism. Uh, with, where with Presbyterians, uh, they would see things a little differently, that they believe that going back through, you know, even back to Abraham, that everything from there we're talking are is part of the covenant of grace. So they would see a, a two administ- administrations of, of one substance, essentially, that there was an old administration of the covenant of grace, and that's what we see, you know, going back to Abraham, we see through the Davidic covenants, through the um, Mosaic uh, Sinai covenants, um, that we see that it, it is part of the covenant of grace because people were saved by by faith and, and according to the promise of God and those things that were pointing forward, and there was elements of the new covenant 
that was there and promised. And so they would see that it was just it was simply a, uh, a different administration. So the new covenant is new, uh, but it's still really tied um, directly with the old, and it's just a, a new administration, not an entirely new covenant. So they they see a much uh, greater continuity as far as the substance of the covenant, where the Baptists would see a continuity in the flow of the covenants and the revelation of what God had promised in the in the plan of redemption, but see a greater distinction between the old and the new, that it is something that is absolutely new. And and you look at Hebrews as something that it's new and better in every way, uh, and that that's a greater distinction. So Baptists see it like that, where the Pado-Baptists would see it that now it's much more... Uh, consistent and, and to the point where clearly then baptism would follow just just as circumcision did in the Old Testament, which would follow the children of believers and the children of believers would be uh, every bit as much as part of the part of the covenant as uh, the believers themselves. So, But they don't believe that the baptism saves the children like Catholics believe that no, they, they, baptism saves. They don't believe in a baptismal regeneration. they um, and that's why we can say we're so close to our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, because they, we, we, you look at the confessions between the Westminster and, and the 1689 London Baptist, and when you talk about baptism, even in Westminster, if you leave out that little section where it talks about baptizing infants or the sprinkling kind of stuff, they're saying very much the same thing we would say. So well, it, It's my understanding that the second London Baptist confession came after and they, they sort of copied it. Right. We took everything that was good and made it better. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, and and he, so what? What a um, you know a Westminster uh, Reformed with you know perspective on on what we think baptism accomplishes, and that is very much uh, of similar kind of, of of a belief. It's just where it's administered to, and is it is is the are those who are to receive the sign of the covenant, just those who are, are born to believers. So is, are they, are the children of those who are saved also a part of that covenant? Or is it, is the sign of the covenant only to be given to those who are in the new covenant, the way that the Baptist would say that the new covenant is, you are, it's a new covenant by new birth, by having that heart of stone turned into a heart of flesh, by being given faith, a spirit indwelling in professing true belief, uh, true regeneration, and that the sign of the covenant then should follow the actual entrance into the covenant, which is by faith, not by birth. So that that's that that's the largest distinction then between you know a Baptist and, and a Presbyterian perspective. So even though we give the sign at the time of profession, so baptism comes at the time of profession, we still believe though in generational faithfulness from God, the way that He promises to the third and fourth generation in the sense of we really do have faith that the Lord will bless our faithfulness as parents to save our children if we are being diligent in sharing the gospel with them. That doesn't mean 100% all of our children will be saved, but we have a general peace and faith and trust that the Lord will save our children. Definitely, definitely. And and I, um, I think we have every right to say that if we are raising our children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and, and knowing that it's not perfection and it's not according to our skill and our, our, our worth in that. But if we are raising our kids to love and fear God, we ought to be able to, we ought to have a hopeful expectation that God will save our children. 
No, it's not a guarantee. It's God who chooses, God who elects. God is faithful and just and glorious and good and beautiful, whether he saves all of our children or he saves none of them. But it was never a guarantee in the Old Testament either. We see David's, I mean, David was a man after God's own heart, and even he had children who fell away. Definitely, that that is true. And we see some of the some of the very godly examples and faithful examples in the Old Testament had children that strayed, and so we we don't have a guarantee there. And, and even from a Baptist perspective, and uh, I, I try, you know, we we've tried pretty diligently to to, to convince people that no, we as a Baptist, uh, those those promises of generational blessing, they're they're still there. That's how God interacts with His people. We don't have to hold to a a Presbyterian. Uh, view of the covenants to to ex- have an expectation that God works to generations. That's what He says He does. That's what He has done. It is the He is the same God now as He always has been, as He will be, and He does delight to show faithfulness and to bless those who, even to the to the generations after those who have been faithful to Him. So, we we would say have a hopeful expectation. And and if if you're a Baptist out there that that can't is struggling to see how that applies. Uh, then let me just simply say, um, until you can understand how to do that from a Baptist perspective, uh, raise your kids like you're Presbyterian. <laughs> raise them with the with the expectation. Uh, don't baptize them, but raise them with the expectation that they will the the hopeful expectation that they will come to faith. You are raising them as Christians to be Christian, raising them to believe, raising them to obey, right? Raising them to love and honor our Savior, trusting that the Holy Spirit will in his perfect timing uh, do the regenerative work in their hearts to, to make them new creations and to give them the faith and then they will profess and then baptize them. Yeah, we, we've heard of, of people, of Baptists, that take the, of Reformed Baptists that take this too far and, and don't talk to their children as if they could love God and are, are just very too stern in their way of relating these truths. Love your children. Talk to them as though they know the Lord and just teach him, teach them his ways. And it doesn't have to be, I think sometimes we can make things too hard, too difficult. Yeah, and we can, we can put too much pressure on ourselves, think of we've got to be too perfect on things rather than diligent faithfulness we we got to think we got to hit all the marks just right and and this is a subject i can guarantee that we're going to come back to uh time and time again is it's it's um, one of the most important things in our lives now we've got seven children and you know 14 down to two so we this is hugely important and practical for our our daily lives um so trust that we we will come back to that subject as we know it's important now uh, i did just want to mention briefly as we're kind of wrapping up our discussion of covenantalism, that there is kind of a new kid on the block um, that that's a, a type of covenantalism that you will see out there. And it, it's new covenant theology uh, is what it's called. Uh, and really that it's, this is typically something that's coming out of uh, Calvinistic Baptistic kind of um, environment. And that kind of context is where it's coming out of. Um, so there's a lot of this still, the, the credo Baptist kind of things that, uh, that you're going to see and, and some similarities um, with the the Baptist perspective of covenantalism. But um, a couple of big things is there's a rejection with New Covenant theology of uh, the covenant of works, uh, going back to Adam. So there's a rejection of the covenant of works, that there's a, a either a rejection or a different understanding of the way that the covenant of grace comes around 
they they don't make a distinction completely typically between Israel and the church as separate peoples, but um, that there was still kind of a separation of of how they were brought about, um, even if they are one people. So that there's things that they seem are more in common with, but a uh, uh, one big thing is that they you know, the Christian ethical system really just comes down to the law of Christ. So that's only only those things that they see specifically taught in the New Testament. There's a general Okay, that rejection. makes more sense because I was having a hard time tracking what you were saying. So yeah, now so I, I understand. There's a general rejection then of of um, of law uh, that, that, you know, we're talking moral law. So, yeah, we, we— So like they throw out the old—do they unhitch from the Old Testament like someone <laughs> said— you know, I um, any brother that's remotely faithful uh, is not going to say they unhitch from the Old Testament. That is such a an awful thing to say out loud. You know, that's that's the thing people think in their heads, uh, and they kind of live like. But you should never, never admit that out loud. Um, no, I, I don't think typically it goes that far. But there is there is a, a a rejection then of holding that we're bound to to God's law. So, you know, there's. Even those of us that would say, okay, there, there are, um, you know, laws pertaining to the sacrificial system that have been fulfilled in Christ and, and really um, have no bearing on us other than the fact that they are, they still reveal the, the perfect standard of God, but a, re, a standard that was fulfilled already for us so we don't have to practice them. Or laws that are, were primarily for the nation of Israel, but even there, uh, even if we would say that those laws were particular to the nation of Israel, we can say, yeah, but the principles behind those laws still reflect the nature of God uh, and the standard of God, and and a, you know even even um, correct proportion of judgment for sin. So we would we can still say there's a general you know uh, the term general equity that we can we can look to other laws that might not be um, enforced outside of the of a theocratic nation of Israel, you know, Old Testament style. But there, there is still usefulness in those laws as far as what they reveal about the nature of God, and God's standards hasn't changed. So if, if something was a, an abomination in the Old Testament, it's still an abomination. If something ought to be punished, you know, if there's principles that ought to have been followed, all those things are still there because God does not change. Um, and and specifically, most most uh, keenly, we look at that with with God's moral law, as, as we said before, is which is summarized in the Ten Commandments. And it's not, you know, from the Baptist perspective, it's not that the the Ten Commandments must be obeyed because they remain part of the old covenant law. That you know, that as Presbyterians would say, it's the it's the same substance but a different administration of the same covenant from old covenant to new covenant. Uh, Baptists would say, no, it's it's a completely new covenant. But our Savior, who perfectly fulfilled the standards of the law on our behalf, so that we are no longer having to fulfill the law's demands in order to be made right with God, he fulfilled that for us perfectly. He obeyed them perfectly for us. His obedience is accounted to us. And yet that still, according to our, that same Savior, remains the standard of God that he even expounded upon. And that's still what he has called Christians to in the gospel call in the New Testament. Is, is to obey the, the law of God and that, you know, that God's law is fulfilled, but it is not made um, irrelevant, that God's standard remains perfect and true for mankind, and there is still something there for us to follow and to learn from uh, and to, to obey. So that, that's, that's, um, 
and we're not going to spend as much time on New Covenant theology because it's not. I just have a feeling they don't like the Puritans. <laughs> <laughs> and you mentioned Puritans, and you know most most of uh, the Puritans are people are going to look at and say, well, you know, they're most of those were either Congregational or Presbyterian, so uh, you know they're they're going to agree with with the. Um, there's a couple Baptists in there. Well, there's a couple Baptists, but one one thing we can always hold out is that we have John Owen. Now, John Owen was co- was a Congregationalist. He was, was a Bunyan. He Bunyan was yes. Okay, but. Bunyan is a is a was a is great and has has great writings, but as far as you know, you talk about those high end chief of chiefs kind of theologian types. Uh, John Owen, who was a Congregationalist and a Pado Baptist, um, yet he held to a a Baptist type understanding of the covenants, okay. where a, a differentiation in between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old covenant still in, was in the world of the covenant of works and the new covenant in the covenant of grace. So he actually saw things like Baptists did. Uh, and there's actually a, a, um, a book that's out there on understanding covenants that actually, I'm going to forget the name of the book now. Um, I think it's by Sam Renahan. That's on, uh, that's, the first half of the book is from Nehemiah Cox, who was a Baptist, and the second half of the book was from John Owen, who was, though not a Baptist, was defending and believed in the Baptist understanding of covenantalism. Caleb can find the name of that book, and we can put it in the show notes. So I did want to just mention a couple of, of resources um, that I think is going to be very helpful. Uh, when, 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 it's, when we're looking, if you want to learn more about covenantalism, um, specifically, sorry, Presbyterians, uh, if you want to Baptist, because the default kind of position for a Baptist who is reformed or, or believes in a covenantal framework has, has often been, uh, well, I, I'm learning from all my Presbyterian guys that I like to listen to, but I'm still going to slap a Baptist tag on it because I'm not convinced about baptize, you know, sprinkling my kids. So uh, that's uh, kind of a, has been the default, but there, we do have a, a long tradition in the Baptist world that goes back, you know, to 1689 and before. And there are, in more recent years, been more works uh, exploring that and kind of um, giving us those resources again that we had lost for so long. Um, one of those books is The Distinctiveness of Baptist Covenant Theology, by a, a guy named Pascal Denault, or, or is it Denou? Or, or it's it's a French name. I'm not gonna not gonna claim <laughs> to know how to pronounce that correctly. Uh, I'm not gonna hold that against some excellent work. Uh, there's also another one on. Um, it's called the Mystery of Christ, His Covenant and His Works, and that one is through Founders Press, uh, and that's another good one that really deals from a 1699 federalism perspective. And as I said, that 1699federalism.com. Uh, it's got some really good resources there. Uh, if you're Presbyterian and you want to learn more about covenantalism, well, you don't actually have to look that hard because there's a lot of books. A lot of you. books, and pretty much all Presbyterians are covenantal. Us Baptists, unfortunately, have to wade through uh, the vast amount of dispensational things that are written from a Baptist perspective and to, to find things that are truly reformed. I think when dispensationalism came on the scene a couple hundred years ago or less, it kind of it took over a lot of Baptists, and we're, we're playing catch-up now. Thankfully, the Lord has inspired many good men to start writing over the last, you know, few decades, but it's we're catching up, too. <laughs> yeah, and we are, we are Time very, lost. very thankful for the men that God has raised uh, in, in this tradition because it, uh, 
it, it's it's unfortunate to hold views that are inconsistent and to be convinced that scripture is uh, uniform, that the plan of redemption is is one and and uh, and there is uniformity in God's plan and purpose through all, which leads you to a covenantal perspective. But to be able to do that and but not be able to have read things from a perspective that really makes sense out of out of the great distinction between the old and new covenant and why uh, the the sign of the covenant has changed so drastically in all those things from a Baptist perspective, and to not have those resources uh, is can be kind of frustrating and leave you always feel a little bit insecure. Yeah. Uh, so there there are those resources that are out there now um, as Baptists that we can look to, and and even um, you know I've got a few different resources now in, in my, on my bookshelf as far as better understanding the Baptist. Uh, confession of faith, and I'm not even going to talk about those right now because that's our next episode is going to be on being confessional. Um, some resources there just to help us understand the heritage that we have because uh, the the world out there that uh, typifies Baptist now is not representative of our heritage and then the great wealth that's there. Yeah, I so that's good. Um, I, I think we're probably uh, good to end there. And Lindsay, is there anything you kind of wanted to, to point back to or, or uh, questions that come up that you think might have been confusing? No, I, I you ended up clarifying some of the things specifically about the New Covenant theology that I wasn't quite tracking with you on. But uh, we really appreciate you listening in today. We have a new episode out of the Reform Faith and Family podcast every Tuesday. You can sign up on our blog at reformfaithandfamily.com to get our weekly newsletter uh, and updates about when our latest podcast episodes drop or the newest articles that are written come out or freebies that will we have some up already but we'll have some more out for you and products so definitely check that out and we will uh, see you here next week so go forward and walk worthy of the call of christ